this is Jay with Potstirer Podcast. Just want to let you know that I'm now writing on Medium. Read my take about topics, issues, events, or whatever comes to mind. My Medium blog is one of the many offerings at my link in bio. Check out potstirrerpodcast.com slash link in bio for my new Medium blog and everything else Poll and Potstirrer Podcast. That's potstirrerpodcast.com slash link in bio. father was someone that, as a kid, I saw as invincible. He was a martial artist, third don, in other words, a third degree black belt in Ishinru karate, a form of karate that originated on the island of Okinawa in Japan, and he had experience in other martial arts styles as well. He told tales of his life as a young person in the late 1960s and 1970s, from befriending a card-carrying clansman who had been his professor in college, to hitchhiking across the United States from the Midwest to his destination of San Francisco, California, where he slept for three days straight at a local YMCA. At the same time, he was down-to-earth and relatable. He once told a story about jumping into a trash can when he got rejected by a girl. And he did his share of things that he wasn't necessarily proud of, and he had his regrets like most people. My dad could befriend anyone. He made friends from all around the globe, various nationalities, races, cultures, and religions. He could talk to the poor and to the well-off, and his faith had a degree of fluidity as well. He grew up Catholic and attended parochial schools, and as an adult, he was into New Age spirituality and astral projection. He dabbled in at least a couple types of Islam at various periods of his life, evangelical Christianity, black church Christianity, and he would occasionally return to the Catholicism of his youth. He always believed in God, but what God looked like to him had some flexibility. He was a voracious reader and felt like he could learn from anything and anyone. No books were off limits. He had all kinds of books, like the spiritualist tome, the Urantia book, as well as the Turner Diaries, books from Elijah Muhammad, the Bible, and the Quran, and he would be open to reading anything from Mein Kampf to the Communist Manifesto, and anything in between. And no, my dad wasn't an extremist himself, but regardless of the philosophy, the faith, the book, the person, he always felt you could learn from them. He would always say, take what you can and throw the rest away. I'll probably never be as interesting, gregarious, or cool as my father. And that's not me lacking confidence. It's not daddy issues or any kind of self-own. I never felt like I had to be just like him. And I was never made to feel like I should. And besides, I can only be myself. With my own interests, life experiences, and friendships. And that's okay. But I've always loved the idea of having a stable moral compass yet being open to new information and being willing to sometimes be wrong. I spent a chunk of my adult life as an evangelical Christian, torn between the dogmatic nature of my newfound faith and my innate intellectualism and curiosity. 
before the latter won out. And I never want to stifle my curiosity under the weight of an unquestioning, rote version of belief again. My dad has been gone for 15 years, but that lesson still rings true. Take what you can and throw the rest away. I'm your host, Jay Poole, and this is Potstirer Podcast, Potstirer Scoops. Welcome to Potstirer Podcast, where politics, religion, and history collide, and it's not always polite. Recently, I was watching a YouTube video by J.J. McCullough, a Washington Post writer and political social commentator, entitled, What Country Has the Least Bad History? And it was posing the question, do countries exist without sordid pasts? Does it really matter? The jumping off point for the video was a statement from Canadian politician Erin O'Toole, who is the former leader of the Conservative Party of Canada. Back in June of 2021, he was discussing the legacy of Canadian residential schools. Residential schools were boarding schools Indigenous children in Canada were sent to against the will of their families and communities in order to isolate and strip them from their First Nations cultures and assimilate them to white Canadian culture and society. The children at these residential schools were subjected to physical abuse, molestation and sexual assault, and scientific experimentation. Thousands of children died, and rather than have their bodies sent back to their families and communities to be laid to rest according to their native traditions, these bodies were buried at the schools, usually in unmarked graves. The residential schools operated from 1831 to 1996. In recent years, due to the work of Canada's Truth and Reconciliation Commission, the degree of abuse, neglect, and death has been exposed in greater detail to a wider audience, including both in Canada and internationally. In 2021, efforts got underway to uncover unmarked graves at the sites of former residential schools. At some sites, the bodies of hundreds of children were discovered, further exposing an incredibly horrifying, painful period in Canada's past. Speaking on this immense horror, O'Toole said this. I'm concerned that injustices in our past or in our present are too often seized upon by a small group of activist voices who use it to attack the very idea of Canada itself. We are not a perfect country. No country is. There is not a place on this planet whose history can withstand close scrutiny. But there is a difference between acknowledging where we've fallen short. There is a difference between legitimate criticism and always tearing down the country always being on the side of those who run Canada down, always seeing the bad and never the good. This is an all-too-common response to a country wrestling with the horrors of past injustices. And it happens not only in Canada, but elsewhere, including in the United States, 
where we have our own shameful history with indigenous residential schools, as well as racism and other forms of bigotry more generally. When horrors committed by government are exposed, there are often leaders who see the resultant push to address and atone for them, and they give these types of responses. And in a fascinating twist, and topical given the Russian invasion of Ukraine, here's former occupier of the White House, Donald Trump, giving pretty much this response as well, but in support of the leader and nation he's truly loyal to. Putin's a killer. A lot of killers. We got a lot of killers. Why you think our country's so innocent? Here's the thing. It's an enticing argument to make. And it's a great rhetorical exercise. If we want to dig back into the pasts of almost every country, small and large and anything in between, we can find a negative, some kind of national shame, events or practices a country is not proud of, whether it's the oppression of one group or a number of groups by a more powerful group, or the regime of an inhumane dictator or terrifying strongman, or a government that systematically grifted from their population. You can always find something. And then, of course, the follow-up question is that if just about all countries did something terrible, which is worse? Are the Crusades, which all told caused the deaths of about 1.7 million people, not as bad or worse than the Khmer Rouge, a regime in Cambodia that killed 1.5 to 2 million people, so give or take approximately the same amount of people? The Crusades were several centuries ago, as opposed to the Cambodian Genocide, which occurred in the late 1970s. But at the time the Crusades occurred, the world population was 300 million, slightly less than the population of the United States alone today. And the Crusades were the fault of several empires, both Christian and Islamic, and institutions such as the Roman Catholic Church, and were fought in places where borders have since shifted and new countries were created. So who can be blamed for the Crusades? Whose national shame is it really? Measuring what atrocity or set of atrocities is worse isn't so easy to quantify. Of course, the common denominator among all of these is power. Power is what often attracts people to politics and government, what keeps them there, what leads them to fight, oppress, and grift, what leads them to crawl, to scrape, to do whatever it takes to stay there. Even if they're born into power, such as being born into a royal line of secession, it's rare that they voluntarily give it up, especially if they are not provided some other type of power in exchange, such as money or some other influential role. Power does not have to be used in a negative way. It can be used to help others. For example, the Bible constantly exhorts the powerful to use what they have to show compassion for and care for the least of these, the oppressed, the widow, the orphan, the imprisoned. And it commands this without respect to deservingness. For to whom much is given, much is required. But the temptation is always there to abuse said power. All throughout history, in many places around the globe, there are real-life stories of individuals and collectives being unable or unwilling to resist the urge, the temptation to abuse power. Power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. But the exercise of 
whether or not a given country is morally blameless is, at its core, a distraction. Why do politicians and other political influencers trot out the line, yeah, we may have done something bad in our past, but other countries have done bad things too. There are no good or pure countries. When they say that, it's typically within the context of their country being held to account for something they're doing currently or while reckoning with collective sins of the past. And it comes off as a way to avoid that reckoning, distract from their current misdeeds, to essentially deflect. Sure, what we did was bad, but see, look at them. Look at these other countries. Don't judge us. And speaking of judgment, the narrative that there are no blameless countries draws attention away from the fact that most of the time, the reason for the reckoning usually has little or nothing to do with other countries calling them out, but more to do with attention being drawn to atrocities from within. In the case of Canada's mistreatment of the First Nations community, including the abuse of Indigenous children, it was the First Nations people, as well as other Canadians, who drew attention to the historical and contemporary injustices. In the United States, whether it was slavery, Jim Crow, or current movements such as Black Lives Matter, such movements are led by Black Americans, sometimes in conjunction with white Americans and other groups of Americans. And the same can be said with other justice movements in the United States. They have typically been led by people who have been harmed or who are descendants of those who have been harmed by those practices. The point being that such movements to right wrongs are not typically led by outsiders passing judgment on what's happening in another country, but are led from within. A huge part of the deflection, this focus on the misdeeds of other countries, serves to invalidate the voices of those who have been harmed and, where applicable, their descendants. The truth is that there is no rhetorical nor moral obligation to address every other conflict, every single form of oppression when calling attention to a particular historical or contemporary harm. Such insistence that we play oppression Olympics is a form of gaslighting and silencing of those affected and those who advocate on their behalf. It also keeps us from challenging the popular understanding of our national past and present. Most generations of Americans alive today have been taught in schools that the United States has stood for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness from our nation's founding. And we've waved that flag no matter what we did or where we went. We spread our freedom westward across the North American continent and then beyond. We fought to free the slaves. We fought to free people in World Wars I and II and became the leader of the free world after that. Never mind that the freedom spread westward did not extend to indigenous people who experienced genocide and displacement or to the enslaved people who were just as bound in the West as they were in the East. Never mind that chattel slavery itself took place under the United States flag, regardless of regional boundary. And never mind that while the Confederacy did fight to retain chattel slavery, the United States government, aka the North, did not fight to end slavery but to preserve the country's physical integrity. Never mind that the U.S. got involved late in both world wars after a lot of the fighting was finished, much like in hockey where you throw the bench warmer out onto the ice when it's triple OT in Game 7 of the Stanley Cup Finals. And never mind that during the Second World War, 
the United States declined to allow Jews that were escaping the Nazis into the U.S., causing more death due to the Holocaust. Never mind that the U.S. was involved in fueling unrest and instability in several countries during and after the Cold War, leading to untold death and destruction. Instability within many countries in Latin America, the Middle East, Southeast Asia, and elsewhere, and global problems that still persist to this day. Those truths and so much more don't sit very well with many Americans, especially when many of us were taught in our formative years that we have always been the good guys. Are we the baddies? In some of the more recent episodes of Pot Stirrer Podcast, I've discussed critical race theory, an academic concept that focuses on the impact of race on the U.S. legal system and other institutions, and how that has affected racial realities both historically and today. More importantly, I've honed in on the fact that the term critical race theory has been used by conservatives to outlaw the teaching of facts about U.S. history and civics in classrooms all over the country. It's a way for them to cancel the teaching of fact-based, accurate history, and more broadly, accurate information. It means that the effort is being made to brainwash this generation of school children and the next into believing a whitewashed, sanitized narrative regarding the United States and our society. It's exchanging a truth for a lie. Anti-critical race theory laws have pretty much nothing to do with actual critical race theory, which in reality is taught on a very limited level in law schools and graduate social sciences, and everything to do with pushing harmful lies and propaganda to children. Americans are being told that teaching the truth about our country's history in schools or teaching the truth about the current inequalities faced by marginalized folks in this country will make white children feel bad, will make children of color play the victim card and not work hard, will sexualize children too early, will make them question what their parents are teaching them, and that is bad. Besides the fact there is no evidence that has been released by the pro-propaganda right wing proving that any of this actually happens in any significant way. It seems that what those who support propaganda are really afraid of is dealing with the truth themselves. Why would the truth make white children feel bad? I mean, should it? Is emphasizing with those who have been marginalized during our nation's history, with effects that stretch to the present day, the same as feeling like you personally have done something wrong? Unless you have personally done something wrong, it shouldn't. And in this conversation, there's no concern that failing to teach our country's racial history and instead telling a whitewashed history where only presumably straight white Christian men participated and others are only supporting characters at best will negatively affect children of color or young girls or young LGBTQ plus kids. And yes, the realization one is queer can happen young. Conservatives often deride safe spaces for young people, usually young children of color and LGBTQ plus youth, but want the entire school to be a safe space that will free white children from the dangers of having the worldview their parents and church leaders teach them challenged. And the idea that children of color won't work hard because they are educated about the truth of our nation's history and current system 
is rooted in conservative narratives regarding Black American political and social behavior. These narratives discount and dismiss the accounts of Black Americans in our day-to-day lives, backed up by data showing glaring inequalities and histories documenting where those inequalities stem from. Instead, the dominant conservative narrative is that Black Americans still experience inequalities in the U.S. due to a lack of education, while belittling Black intelligentsia, and a lack of work ethic, even though we are descended from folks who built this country and kept it going without pay and without being shown any shred of dignity, while white leaders took the credit. This conservative narrative leads them to believe that a majority of Black Americans today vote for Democrats because we don't know any better and we want to be given handouts. And the only way Black Americans will achieve equality is to gaslight ourselves out of believing what we experience and see with our own eyes and ears, believe like them, and vote like them. The conservative narrative, elements of which some white liberals also believe, is a deeply racist narrative with no basis in reality. The fact is that children will not be harmed by learning actual history and real-life civics. The truth is that adults, particularly certain adults, don't want to be challenged by a reality where they, or folks like themselves, are not the main character. They were taught that they, and people like themselves, were the center of American reality, always were and always will be. But that's not the truth. That's not real life, and it never was. Over the past several years, there has been a pervasive lie that racism is largely a thing of the past. It's a relic we see in black and white photos. Angry segregationists and peaceful black people, all well-dressed, who existed in our distant memories instead of in our family trees and at our Thanksgiving dinner tables. Since we don't see white and colored water fountains and labeled public spaces, and we do see black athletes on our TV screens and black actors at the movie theaters, that Racism is now over. Maybe not completely over. There may be some random Klansman here or there who likes to play dress up and scream N words at black people. But other than that rarity, any racial issue that people of color, especially black Americans, want to discuss is just in our imaginations. And bringing it up at all, even if it isn't about confronting them or calling them racist, is simply playing the race card or leaning on race. And the future has made such folks even more on edge. Within the past 10 or 20 years, many schools were finally starting to teach about diversity, equity, and inclusion. Education that serves a wider variety of children, not just those from majority demographics. The debate about what is being taught in the classroom is not about critical race theory. It's not about blame and fault It's about knowledge and truth and whether it continues to be taught in the classroom or if the government is used to censor it. Knowledge is power and having knowledge of our history and our current reality is instructive. It lets us know how we got here. It can teach us lessons. It can show us what works and what doesn't without us having to reinvent the wheel. It can help us develop a roadmap to a brighter, more peaceful and inclusive future. And there are powerful folks who are afraid of that kind of future because they already see it upon us. 
discussed in previous episodes that non-Hispanic white Americans are projected to be a numerical minority by the year 2045. And there's data showing that conservatives, particularly white evangelical Christians, are more likely than other groups to see diversity as a negative. And while the numbers are changing, the way Americans view diversity and social responsibility is also changing, in part due to changes in education. Many say that Generation Z, folks born in 1997 or later, are shaping up to be the most empathetic, inclusive, and passionate generation alive. We look at the likes of gun control advocates David Hogg and X. Gonzalez, environmentalist Genesis Butler, and climate change activist Shatescott Martinez, and see in the flesh that the future can be improved as the older generations die off and the new ones take their place. Of course, the reality is much more complex than simply the young coming to save us. Many of the white supremacists at the 2017 Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, Virginia, including terrorist killer James Alex Fields Jr., are also part of Gen Z, as are some of the insurrectionists who were involved in January 6th. But in general, this generation strikes fear into powerful conservatives who view increasing diversity based on race, ethnicity, beliefs, sexual orientation, gender identity, and then some as an existential threat to the United States as they know it, specifically a threat to their power and the power of their own progeny and they want to cut it off at the pass. Short of more drastic and genocidal measures, what better way to mitigate the impact of increased diversity than to teach this and future generations of young people lies and propaganda that would lead them to support conservative ideologies that do not serve them nor their country well? If history is instructive in improving the future, how do we know what to keep and what to throw away? The balance between guilt and pride. If we have a history of doing bad things, are our country's ideals worth fighting for? I think they are. The ideals of liberty, equality, democracy, opportunity, those all matter. It's important to have something to shoot for, and those ideals are so key in cultivating a socially and economically stable country with a happy, fulfilled populace and a positive trajectory. And honestly, I think even most conservatives are on board with these ideals. But faking it until we make it doesn't work for advancing a whole diverse country. Pretending these ideals have already been realized by whitewashing all the times we've fallen short and continue to do so is a farce. And treating discussions of race, sex, sexual orientation, gender identity, religion, and so forth as if it's some long-held family secret is only delaying the inevitable. DNA exists, and so does the truth about this country. Let's be willing to live honestly, both ourselves as individuals and in all aspects of life, in our communities and institutions, and as a country. That means being willing to put in the work, to confront where we're uncomfortable, and to challenge ourselves with reality. There are no shortcuts. Thank you very much for listening to Potstirer Podcast. If you enjoyed the episode, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, 
Amazon Prime, or on your favorite podcast app. If you subscribe for free, you'll be able to listen to new episodes once they come out. No waiting. Once it's posted, you'll have it. If you enjoyed the podcast, please go on your app of choice and leave five stars and a review. Again, check out the new link in bio at potstarpodcast.com slash link in bio, where you can check out my Medium blog, links to Potstar Podcast on several podcast players, browse the Potstar Podcast merch store, or support my work via Coffee or PayPal. And I love to tweet quite a bit, so follow me on Twitter at PotstarCast. I'm Jay Poole. Let's fight for America's future because freedom is not free. Free.